Profitability. The only way for rural hospitals to stay open is to bring in more money than they spend in order to operate. But with the nature of the rural environment, including how healthcare is affected by state and federal policy, makes this much more difficult than balancing a household budget. So how do we increase profitability, allowing rural hospitals to operate in the black and serve their communities for years to come? Rachel, with state and federal advocacy efforts, smart investments, and an innovative payment model. I'm Rachel Lott. And I'm J.J. Hotshire. And this is Rural Health Rising. Welcome to Episode 15 of Rural Health Rising. I'm J.J. Hotshire, President and Chief Executive Officer of Hillsdale Hospital. And I'm Rachel Lott, Director of Marketing and Development. So we are on part three of our series on the five P's that we have learned from Mark Holmes of the North Carolina Rural Health Research Center. So far, we've covered population and policy. Today, we're talking about profitability. And this is not a new topic to discuss on our show by any means. From episode one of Rural Health Rising, we've discussed the challenges that rural hospitals face in this area. Breaking even is seen as an accomplishment, and ending the year with any profit margin at all is seen as a heroic feat in the rural healthcare space. So today we're going to look at how specifically state and local government can have a direct impact on profitability for rural hospitals. That's right, Rachel. And today our guest is a good friend of mine and a newly elected state representative, Andrew Fink, representing us here in the 58th District of Michigan. Welcome to Rural Health Rising, Andrew. Thanks, JJ. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks very much for having me on. So, Andrew, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and your recent journey to the Michigan House of Representatives? Yeah, sure, of course. I grew up in Ypsilanti, uh, about 65 miles east of Hillsdale, and I came out to this uh, area after being homeschooled by my mother and uh, and my my dad, who's a retired sheriff's officer over in Washtenaw County, came out here to go to Hillsdale College in 2003. And while I was here, I studied politics and I uh, got interested in maybe working in politics. My first job out of college was working on Congressman Wahlberg's campaign. I think he's been a previous guest on Rural Health Rising, uh, which is how I got to know J.J. Hodshire for the first time. And of course, while I was out in this area, I really fell in love with this community and the people here. It's been said before that it's the people. And that's what brought my wife and me back here uh, a few years ago. Um, I had spent some time as an attorney in the Marine Corps and uh, and when I was back in private practice and we were looking at where where we thought we wanted to build our uh, our, you know, permanent home for our for our five children. Well, it's now five children. It was four when we got out here. We'll probably talk about that later. <laughs> uh, but uh, we decided we wanted to, to live in this area. And so we've been back out here for a few years. And the uh, the journey to, to getting active in politics myself or, or becoming a candidate myself was really just looking at the direction I thought that our country was going in, the direction I thought our politics were going in, being concerned for the future for my five kids and deciding that if I didn't uh, jump in the game and try to make my voice heard and things didn't turn out well, well, I'd, I'd have to at least partially blame myself for that. So I, I, I thought with the seat being open, it was time to, to jump in. Andrew, I, I couldn't be more happier that uh, you came to Hillsdale County. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad you have chosen this as your new home. Uh, we're excited to have you here. I, I knew your dad before I even knew you. Uh, your dad was a commander in law enforcement, and so was I. Uh, different counties, of course. But I remember the first time I had a chance to meet you was at Congressman Wahlberg's picnic. Remember the annual picnic yep, yep. Uh, that he had? And then soon realized that Andrew was married to uh, the first reporter that ever took me on uh, at the Hillsdale Collegian. But uh, we'll leave that for another story. Um, but, uh, Andrew, it's great to have you here today. And one of the things that we do on the show, which is important for our, uh, our listeners to learn a little bit more about you is uh, we ask 
and we start with the why. Um, so Andrew, what is your why? What motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? You know, if you're a if you're in American politics, then the answer to that question should be the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution of the United States of America, and the great tradition of liberty, strong families, uh, independence from imperial powers that that kind of give us the character of Americans, and uh, and that's that's really a good way to think about how you know. In terms of my work now, when I, when I get up in the morning, I think, you know, what can I do to make sure that this country is freer for my children than it is today? What can I do to make sure this country is stronger than it is today? What can I do to make sure that it's more independent than it is today, less dependent on, on other countries? And and uh, so when I when I look at at the work I have to do every day, that's kind of the attitude that I'm taking towards it. And and I think those things are important enough to to motivate me throughout a day. Andrew, it's, uh, first of all, thank you for your service uh, in the United States military. Uh, the contributions which you have made are significant to protecting those very freedoms that you talk about. So uh, first, thank you for that. And You're, second of course, of very all, welcome. Thank you for uh, taking the, the daunting task of running for state office and uh, the challenges associated with that. It's uh, certainly not a, an easy endeavor, and I, I couldn't uh, think of a better guy that I want representing uh, Hillsdale County uh, than, than Andrew Fink. So let's get involved a little bit today about uh, some, some of the discussion regarding profitability. And um, maybe you could talk to us about your perspective on health care from a state level. Uh, and even though you're you're almost brand new uh, to the state level, you've uh, you've worked around uh, healthcare in your past, and so uh, as we know, both federal and state governments can have a major impact on hospitals and healthcare providers. So, as a representative uh, for a very rural district, uh, what do you see as the state's role in supporting and safeguarding access to care in rural communities? That's such an important question. I'm on the health policy committee for the state house. And when I talk with, uh, you know, with folks who are advocating for one policy or another, um, I make a point of telling them, look, I'm from one of the only, in fact, I'm, I'm from the only fully two-county district south of Lansing. Uh, uh, this is a rural area. And so when I talk about uh, access to health care, I'm talking about, you know, distance from the corner, you know, from from uh, the Indiana-Ohio border mm-hmm. to Hillsdale. And I tell people, look, it's... it. It takes everybody twenty minutes to get any place. Anyway. If if you live, you know, in a in a rural area, yeah. I mean, um, those of us who who live either in or very near the city, it's it's a little bit different. But you know, many of uh, of of our folks are are still living out on family farms that you know their great great grandparents chopped the trees down on one hundred and fifty mm-hmm. or two hundred mm-hmm. years ago. So. Uh, that that really is the lens through which I look at these healthcare issues. I feel like that's what I can bring to the discussion is just reminding people that a lot of folks in Michigan are not living in Metro Detroit. They're not living in Kalamazoo or Grand Rapids. And so we need to have health policy that works across the entire state. We can't think of it as simply about the really large hospital systems uh, in, in large uh, areas with, Absolutely. you know, with the kind of transportation challenges that they have, very different from the transportation challenges we have, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So that that's that's basically the uh, the the lens through which I, I look at these things in, and as far as the the, the state's role in supporting healthcare in rural communities, uh, as I know we're going to talk about further, both the federal government and the state and locals all have influence over the availability and accessibility of healthcare. Yes, and so I think that the state's role should be, how, you know, what are we doing that gets in between uh, patients and the care that they need. And how do we get out of the way? That's great. That's great. Thank you, Andrew.
So this is an issue that's um, kind of, I mean, it directly impacts healthcare. We saw it impact healthcare during the pandemic, but it also is a broader piece um, because healthcare organizations are employers. So um, when we look at the pandemic, and unemployment has obviously been a big issue. Hospitals were affected by this just as much as other employers. So talk to us about the unemployment situation here in Michigan, both earlier in the pandemic and now. How do you make decisions and advocate for both your individual constituents, but also the organizations that employ them in this type of scenario? Yeah, you can't put employers and employees really on opposite sides of an issue because uh, at the end of the day, if that's the way it goes, then, then the whole thing's going to fall apart. You know, we have to find, we, we have to look at policy solutions um, that are good for everybody uh, because other, if, if, if you hammer employers at the, uh, in, in sort of what you think is in favor of employees, well, eventually the employees need a place to work and so you can't treat the employer as a punching bag. And of right. course, uh, vice versa, um, you, you do have people who are, uh, who, whose employers have been paying into an unemployment system all this time and then a, a global pandemic hits, you know, hundreds of thousands of people's lives are, di- are disrupted and then that unemployment insurance system doesn't work very well. That's a, that's a problem too. So, uh, I certainly don't look at it as an employer versus employee thing. I, that's that's not a helpful way to look at it. Um, I think this has actually been a good opportunity. I mean, uh, it's too bad that it takes something like COVID-19 to get us to look at the inefficiencies in our unemployment insurance agency. But uh, we we unfortunately saw a glaring issue with the state deciding when it uh, was, was processing claims early in the pandemic to skip the step of checking for fraud. And, mm-hmm. uh, and that is meaningfully expensive. And we've spent... You know, I think the number I, I I don't have it right in front of me. I think we've we've spent over five billion dollars in unemployment insurance claims in the last year. That took our our uh, fund from four and a half billion dollars um, to under a billion. You know, to I think about six hundred and seventy million left in that fund now. Obviously, that's five billion is more than four and a half that we put money into it over the course right. of the year as well, right? So. Uh, so it, it's a it's a massive issue, and uh, that system not working as efficiently as it should have is something that I know we need to get fixed going forward. And several several folks uh, who serve on the appropriations committee with me, uh, who have been uh, employers of small businesses in particular, uh, my friend Timmy Beeson from up in Bay City. Uh, is a total bulldog on this issue, and 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 mm-hmm. we're going to get some some really good leadership, and I think some good movement on this because it's not acceptable to have an unemployment system that employers have been paying real money into for a long time, and then watch it get abused by not monitoring it for fraud. So JJ, I have a question for you, and this also relates to you know the employment side of what we do. It's an example of how state level decision making can impact hospitals directly. So as part of the pandemic relief in Michigan, a two dollar per hour wage hike was funded by the state for direct care workers. Now the definition of direct care workers was very narrow um, and apply, it's applied specifically to those working in direct patient care in skilled nursing facilities, but only those in specific roles, even in that sense, like nursing, nursing assistants, respiratory therapists. So Governor Whitmer recently proposed a permanent extension of that wage hike in her proposed executive budget, so that could continue. Can you walk us through what that experience and implementation process was like for Hillsdale Hospital and what that might mean for us moving forward? Should that be extended permanently? Sure, Rachel. It's very problematic. Uh, You've heard the phrase unintended consequences and decisions that are made at the state level without consulting, you know, local health care in situations such as this have unintended consequences. And there's been many for us. Um, When this first legislation, you know, came out, 
uh, and Senate Bill 690. And it uh, identified that a $2 hour increase would be given across the board for skilled nursing facility uh, employees. Um, Hospitals like mine who operate not only on the inpatient side, surgery and, uh, you know, outpatient services. We have a skilled nursing facility, 39 beds, and they're doing the same level of work at times that uh, inpatient workers are doing as well, nurses, LPNs, CENAs, and the list goes on. Uh, To give them a premium of $2 an hour, uh, unfortunately, set a a very bad precedent uh, for our hospital. Because we have now two choices. We implement this $2 an hour, which we're mandated to by law, across the board to skilled nursing facility uh, employees only. And we create an environment uh, where my other employees who are facing the same amount of challenges, right? They're taking care of patients who are even sicker than those that are in skilled nursing. Remember, skilled nursing is rehab, rehabilitation. You know, it's long-term care. The patients are sick, but it's not on that medical-surgical side. So what we see on the inpatient side for our critical care unit and our medical-surgical side are very ill patients who, unfortunately, we've had a lot that have come in. And because of the coronavirus and the illness, uh, they need extensive care. And our nurses are going into these rooms with PPE and are, you know, donning and doffing of their of their uniforms and the and the list goes on of the requirements that they have to do. But they're on the front lines even more uh, if you talk about the patients who are the critical among us. And so when a state comes out with a rule and a law like this that uh, says two dollars an hour for a specific sector of healthcare, it becomes very problematic. So I either have the choice to implement it according to the standards set by the state, and create uh, an unfair environment for those in my uh, hospital who are delivering the same amount of care or even more intensive care. Or I've got to now create an environment where I have to give $2 an hour to everybody else. And we had to do that. Essentially, I had to provide two bonuses uh, to my staff who were on the front lines Uh, And can you imagine this? You know, we're going to talk about it in a minute, but surgeries are shut down for elective surgeries. We're losing millions and millions of dollars. The state comes out with this requirement that I have to give $2 an hour to a sector of my uh, hospital, and no one else gets it. It creates, you know, this uh, unfortunate uh, environment where staff are pointing the finger at each other. Why does she get it and I don't? And that's going to naturally happen. You know, we're on the front lines. Why can't we get it? So then I have to level the playing field at my expense. Right. And to the tune of every time that we gave that bonus, three hundred and eighty thousand uh, dollars to to rectify this. So over a span of one year, we gave two bonuses to level the playing field. The two dollar an hour people did not get it. Uh, employees and Godspeed to them uh, that they are doing the work that they're doing, and we appreciate it. But when the state comes in and sets those strategies for us, we're left holding the bag with now making sure that the the playing field was level. And so, at a tune of nearly seven hundred thousand dollars, we had to make this adjustment. And I don't know what the future is going to hold because this is now part of permanent legislation, right? And so, how am I going to manage this in the infrastructure that I have today with wages? and cost and losing money because patient volumes are down and individuals have lost their jobs. They don't have health insurance. Uh, So it becomes more and more problematic. And when you shift that, Rachel, to the federal side of it, it scares me to think about $15 an hour because we know that the numbers our HR director pulled for us to correct that, to move everybody up in the bands, is going to be $1.6 million a year. Those type of decisions – 
you know, are unintended consequences. I understand the spirit of why they did it, you know, because it feels good and we have to give, you know, some recognition. But no consulting, you know, local health care is problematic when these decisions are made. Representative Fink, a major concern when it comes to profitability is surgery. And I just spoke about that a few minutes ago. But in hospitals across the country of all sizes, surgeries are a major source of revenue that allow other service lines to be offered because the income from surgeries offsets those losses from other areas of the hospital, like obstetrics, for example, mental health services. During the pandemic here in Michigan and surrounding states, elective surgeries were prohibited for a time. Uh, either to preserve PPE, reduce the transmission of COVID, or sometimes there was uh, both given as examples of why surgeries had to be shut down. Uh, Unfortunately, Hillsdale Hospital lost $10 million during this time, and many patients lost valuable time when it came to managing their health. We know elective does not mean unnecessary. It just means that it's not life or death. But only a fraction of the health care we provide is for life or death circumstances, and that doesn't diminish the importance of the rest of it. So as a legislator uh, at the state level, uh, what's your take on this kind of issue? Uh, how do you advocate for your constituents in this type of scenario? JJ, my take on it is that a doctor uh, is in the best position to judge the, the need that his patient is in uh, for a uh, what, what we might call an elective or, or a um, you know, not not a life or death surgery, but as you say, still critical to that patient's actual health. You know, their the the condition of that person's body depends on on a surgery. I mean, a great example would be I've you know family members uh, with bad knees. I mean, and it 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 may not uh, literally end their life, but it destroys the quality of life if a person can't walk. You know, so uh, taking. Taking a one-size-fits-all strategy to these issues has been, a, a, I think, a big mistake that a lot of governors made, and our governor, unfortunately, is one of them. Uh, during during the earlier days of this pandemic, it's understandable people were unsure what was going to happen. But but assuming that uh, one mind in one in one city, Lansing, uh, knows better than patients and doctors across the state on an issue like you know a joint replacement or. Um, Many other things that 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 might not be you know might not be a, a quadruple bypass surgery, uh, but still major impact on a person's quality of life. That's not the right approach. You know, one size fits all is not the right approach for something like that. Letting doctors and patients figure out how to balance the risks of COVID nineteen or any other condition with the the condition that person's body's in. That's the right way to go. Well, I'm happy to hear your perspective on this, uh, Andrew, and certainly my colleagues in small rural health uh, in healthcare across Michigan would be glad to hear this. And uh, as you know, we fought uh, that issue, and it was later revealed that, well, maybe the decision was made in too much haste. Let science figure that out. And uh, we know that uh, our transmission of COVID here um, almost, you know, six months into the pandemic, uh, we had zero transmission of COVID at our facility because we took the precautions. We know healthcare, you know, and so it's great to hear your perspective on that. Let's let's shift gears just a little bit. Um, another issue that is directly related to what we just talked about with these surgeries is the certificate of need process. Now, uh, there's several states that do not have certificate of need. Uh, there's several states that do, and there's a lot of debate between the two of them. Um, but, you know, it's kind of like once that train has left the track and you're in a certificate of need state, you know, what do we do now when we talk about certificate 
executive need reform. Um, we know that Michigan is a CON state. We call it a CON uh, state because you have to go before a commission and apply. In uh, a lot of variables um, are factored into this. Do you have the population uh, to support another X, Y, or Z in your community? And typically, it's around surgery centers, hospital beds, and those types of things. Um, other states around us, like Indiana, for example, not too far from here, they're not a certificate of need, which means that you know overnight centers can pop up for surgery centers and for hospitals. And uh, what's your take on the certificate need? Uh, and how do you, um, you know, address the vulnerabilities of rural hospitals when we look at this as a policy? So, JJ, it's it's an interesting question. I mean, and um, I guess the 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 top line answer for me is I'm interested in CON reform. I think that uh, that our CON situation. Um, has has limited uh, access to care in in areas like ours, and in other cases, it's kept you know care at a at a level that it maybe doesn't need to be at. You know, requiring uh, surgeries that can be safely done in an ambulatory setting uh, be be done through a hospital admission, for instance. Um, I think there've been there there are places where reform has been good, and and there may be more places to do it in. Your point, though, that we are a CON state, have been, I think, for close to 50 years. Uh, this is the system that we're working within. It's well taken. And when I talk with reformers about this issue, I also tell them I need to talk to, to my local rural hospitals and healthcare providers, make sure I understand what the effect is going to be uh, of, of a particular reform, which isn't to say uh, that that any one person understands the, the best place for us to land uh, you know, on on every reform issue, uh, it's to say that we have to understand what the real life impact is going to be. Try to try try to make a good decision about uh, what the disruption will be. Uh, know know what we're getting ourselves into as we look at ways to reform CON. Well, Andrew, we're going to have a lot of opportunities ahead of us to talk about this. So I look forward to that spirited conversation in the future. And so the last question we have, um, and this really relates to the previous one with the CON process, um, but, you know, we know there are a couple schools of thought when it comes to healthcare and economics. Some people want to see healthcare operate exactly like the free market and are already advocating for policies that assume it does. Others want to see a complete government takeover of healthcare. Um, you know, right now we have more of a hybrid model that leans toward the free market approach. But it's easy to forget that principles of the free market don't entirely apply because we don't get to set the price for the services we provide. The government dictates that to us for Medicare and Medicaid patients in particular. And um, we're limited on our ability to negotiate when it comes to uh, our patients that we serve who um, are covered by commercial insurance and that kind of thing. So from your perspective, um, as we move forward in healthcare, we move past the pandemic, hoping that we're right now in the beginning of the end um, with the vaccine out, which approach is the right one? How do you see states playing a role in that? Um, of course, knowing the federal government's also heavily involved in how our system works on a macro level. Rachel, I think you set it up well. We're, we're in a situation where this industry is so heavily regulated, it's really hard to characterize healthcare as a market in the United States. And... Uh, and that's it is driven by the fact that Medicare, Medicaid are the largest insurer. You know, the federal government essentially, or federal programs, is is the largest insurer and sets prices from which the rest of the industry, you know, adjust to other prices. And in some cases, that's because um, uh, JJ, I can't remember the percentage you said uh, of your patients. 70. So, so seventy percent are the Medicare, Medicaid price. Yeah. In in some instances, maybe most instances, uh, that's not a profitable 
way to do business. And it means that the, the, the rest of the pricing has to be adjusted because of that set pricing. I don't think that that's the best way to organize a healthcare market. I mean, I think that a, a, um, a less heavily uh, invaded by, by both regulation and set prices and things like that uh, uh, system would be better for us. Um, obviously, the, the impact that we can have as a state uh, government is somewhat limited by the fact that these programs are federal. And, uh, and, and so how we kind of try to influence that system to be, uh, to be one where, you know, good outcomes are based on uh, good provision of services uh, and where your profitability that we're talking about today is driven more by your ability to connect with your patients than by your ability to negotiate with insurers who have this arcane and difficult system of setting prices, uh, which again, in the back, the background of which is the fact that the federal government winds up paying for most of the of, of the healthcare experiences had in the United States. Um, that's that's a long term goal. I mean, it's not something you can flick your uh, flick a switch on and, and have a, a true free market uh, tomorrow. And it may always be a unique market. I mean, that's a popular position, I think, with with economists that healthcare is just because of the nature of what you're talking about. It's not buying and selling oranges or hubcaps or right. whatever. You know, it's it's a little harder to, it's a little less tangible. I recognize that. Uh, but but in the long term, I do think getting it onto a more normal market footing would be healthy for us. And so, so taking steps in that direction that take into account exactly, the, again, the way you set it up, Rachel, that, that we're, we're in this game uh, with, with very heavily regulation, heavy, heavy regulations, uh, that's, that's, a, that's the process that we need to be working on. And now for our favorite part of the show, the voice of the patient. Today, we have a story from Rachel and her husband, Ben, who were new to our town when they found out they were expecting their fourth baby. Here is their story. Moving from Lansing to Hillsdale, Rachel and her husband, Ben, had to make some adjustments now that they were living in a smaller community. Soon after their relocation, Rachel and Ben learned that they were expecting their fourth child. The couple was faced with two options, to commute to Lansing, where she had given birth to their three sons, or find a new obstetrician here in Hillsdale. I had heard good things about Dr. Sinisco, Rachel said. After her first meeting with him, she knew that Hillsdale Hospital would be the right fit for her fourth delivery. Rachel grew up in a small town in Iowa where her father practiced medicine, so she was very comfortable with a rural hospital setting. Small town hospitals are what I grew up with. They are what I know, she explained. Rachel appreciated how her doctor was very mindful of her needs. Being her fourth pregnancy, he was as hands-on as she needed him to be. I am really thankful for Dr. Sinisco, she said. He is really kind and compassionate, and having an OB I was comfortable with was my priority. One need that Rachel and Ben did have during their pregnancy was finding out the gender. Although they were fully expecting to have another boy, Rachel and Ben were thrilled to find out they were having a girl. And in mid-October, the couple came to Hillsdale Hospital's birthing center, ready to meet their daughter. Monroe Joy was brought into the world, greeted by her parents, Dr. Sinisco, and a full staff of OB nurses. Rachel said that she and Monroe received great care while at Hillsdale Hospital. Her daughter just so happened to be born during a shift change, so there were many staff on hand ready to make sure she was recovering and comfortable. We had a whole crew, Rachel recalled. 
making her fourth delivery a great experience. You know, that is the second story that we have had uh, here on Rural Health Rising from someone who was new to town, had had previous children at larger hospitals and larger health systems, and were unsure when they, uh, you know, were living in Hillsdale, were then also going to have another baby, uh, whether they wanted to have their baby at a small hospital in a small town. And both of them came away with incredible experiences. So what a testament to the fact that bigger is not always better. And our OB team in particular is excellent and their reputation precedes them. All right, Andrew, before we close, we like to do a fun segment with our guest. Uh, So we want to know, what is your most unique rural experience or one of your favorite memories that is unique to rural life? You know, I worked on a farm, not here, um, but I worked on a farm uh, in, well, the, the guy I worked for moved his farm from West Virginia to New York State while I was in high school and college. And so I actually helped him on both both farms over the summers. Oh, I wow. visit, visited maybe maybe three or four summers in a row. And the first time I helped to work cows uh, really taught me the difference between being a country boy and being a city boy mm-hmm. because <laughs> the amount of cow manure that is normal to have on your clothes and body at all times when you work on a cow farm <laughs> – uh, it was very surprising to me. I'm kind of like, you, you know, I'm, I'm standing behind cows in a chute that I, I think we were doing pregnancy checks, which actually that in and of itself was quite an eye-opening <laughs> yeah. experience. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and see, again, just getting, you know, a cow literally kicking me and then realizing that every time a cow kicks you, the cow puts a pretty uh, marked footprint of oh, yeah. manure on you, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and then they're kicking it up and it, literally on my face. And it's not a reason to like hit the pause button and go take a shower. It's like, no, okay, go get the next cow. Uh, so I think that, that just in a way being close to the, to, to the way, you, you know, um, our friend Andy Weldon likes to say, if you eat food, you're involved in agriculture. Uh, but getting involved at the front end of agriculture, is a, it's a good experience and it's a good way to realize how the world really works in, in a way that you don't get to see if you, you know, grow up with, in a place with sidewalks. Well, thank you for that experience. We appreciate uh, hearing about that. And I'm sure uh, it only took you a few times to learn that you couldn't wear a tie out on the farm and a suit. But uh, <laughs> uh, you're here today in your car hearts and, uh, you know, you are uh, you're living the rural life now. And, and we appreciate your hard work for Hillsdale County. Um, so thanks for joining us today, uh, Andrew. You've got a task ahead of you. And Rachel and I have often shared we wouldn't want your job. Uh, nope. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's a difficult task. But the great news is you're up for it. And uh, you are uh, a remarkable uh, young man. Uh, You have the qualities and the integrity that makes this uh, an opportunity for you to lead in the state of Michigan. So I'm proud uh, that you have chose Hillsdale as your home uh, and that you're representing us the way that you do. I look forward to working with you in the years to come. So thanks for joining us today on Rural Health Rising. Same here, JJ. Rachel, thanks a lot for having me on. Look forward to being back with you someday. Next time on Rural Health Rising, we'll complete our series on the five P's with practice, and we'll be talking to one of our own about ways to deliver care to today's patients. So be sure to tune in. And as a reminder, we are collecting patient testimonials to be featured during our Voice of the Patient segment. If you have an experience to share about the positive impact you or your loved one has had as a patient at a rural hospital or healthcare provider, call our direct-to-voicemail line at 269-447-1265 or email marketing at hillsdalehospital.com and share your story with us. You just might be featured on a future episode of Rural Health Rising. 
And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast and tell others while they should listen too. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong. Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, hosted by J.J. Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. Special thanks to today's guest, State Representative Andrew Fink, serving District 58 in Michigan. For more interviews like this and more information, or to share your patient or family testimonial with us, visit ruralhealthrising.com.